Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today is a special message by Chad Brugman titled, Move In. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can check us out at our website at bccma.org or you can always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Chad Brugman. I love it. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? You guys expectant this morning? You know, it's one of the chief currencies of the kingdom of God is expectancy, kind of the way we, we put so much into money as a currency for us. In the kingdom of God, expectancy is huge currency. It makes the kingdom go around. And so I hope you guys have that. I want to say a couple of things uh, before we, we get into it. Uh, another huge form of currency in the kingdom of God is a currency called honor. I could do a whole message today just about the power of being people who honor people. The Bible says, uh, give honor where it is due, right? And if anytime it's within your power to give honor, make sure that you do that. And so I would be crazy to stand up here in this pulpit and on this stage and not give honor where it is due. And so Pastor Phil and obviously uh, his amazing wife, Sherry, is taking their daughter uh, right now to Phoenix for school. But uh, he has been your faithful pastor at this place since there's about seven people in this church 30 years ago, 30 some years ago. Would you just stand real quick, Pastor Phil? Can we, can we show him our honor and our appreciation? I, as, a young, as a younger pastor, I honor you. I honor you. I don't take it lightly that he would trust me up here with this stage and with this uh, pulpit. It, it, there's something, as I became a, a pastor in a leadership position, uh, something they don't teach you in school, you just have to kind of uh, learn it the hard way. But w- when, you're, when, you're, when you're the leader of a church, there is a target on your back from the enemy. Right, The Bible says if you smite the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, right? And so there's just an exponential degree of pressure and burden that comes with being a lead pastor. And if you're not a lead pastor, it's just something that you'll just never uh, understand. And that's okay, but I'm asking you guys to take my word for it. There's this burden that he has chosen to carry for over three decades, and you don't get to shut it off at 5 p.m. when you go home. It never gets shut off. It's something when God calls you to be a pastor, and thank goodness for his grace, but it's something that when God calls you to especially be a lead pastor, there is a burden that you, bury, uh, that you carry excuse me, that never gets to be shut off. And so that's why I would stop before I got up here and started to, to, to talk to you about Jesus and honor him and his wife for all that they've done for 30-some years. That, to me, as a younger preacher, is incredibly humbling. And so uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I also am in uh, the Boston area and obviously Milford and the surrounding areas for the first time. I've never been here. And this has been really special for me. And here's one of the reasons. Uh, You guys have a reputation in other places. The Northeast does. And it's not the best reputation everywhere I go, okay? I, I I was told a lie about this place. I was told you guys are callous, that you're cold, that you're abrasive, that you're to yourself, that you put it off. And ever since I have been here, every single person, and I'm not just talking about in the church, because we kind of expect that, right? We know how to act in church, right? 
I'm talking about at my hotel. I'm talking about where, places I've eaten, places I've went. Everywhere I've gone so far, everyone up here in the Northeast has been incredibly gracious and kind and wonderful to me. And I just, everywhere I go now, anytime anybody says anything about the Northeast, I got your back. All right, I want you to know that. I love this place. And I love you guys. And I just feel like I've been lied to all these years. I wish I would have got here sooner because there's an incredible group of people. And I can see most of your faces right now. And I feel like this room is the same. Um, I I do want to do this before we get started, if you don't mind. Because if you think it's weird for you to have a guest speaker, you should be standing where I'm standing. It's way more weird for me, all right? Because I'm the new guy here. And, And I'm up front and everyone's looking at me. And there's this unseen God that I get to talk about. Luckily, we have his son to show us what he's like. And so we're gonna talk about Jesus. But right before we do that, one more thing. Could I, could I just have the privilege of showing you a picture of my family and introducing? They couldn't come with me. It's too far and school just started. This is my amazing family. Uh, as you can see, I had uh, four kids. I should have had two kids, but I had four. That's why I have bags under my eyes this morning. It's not, I got great sleep last night. It's just, I'm tired because God probably gave me the capacity and character to steward two children. And uh, my wife's beautiful, so we had four, okay? And so uh, that's Jude, and that's uh, my daughter Jane, my younger son Benjamin, and that little guy at the bottom. He's taken years off my life, I promise you. His name is Cruz, and we love them all, but we should have had two, so pray for the Brugmans. <laughs> now, I had the privilege, my, my wife is the single greatest gift God's ever allowed me to, to, to steward, is getting to be the husband to that woman. She is an incredible, I wish she was with me. She is, she is an incredible human being. I had the privilege of, uh, some of you might have this story, marrying a woman from outside of the United uh, States. It's been pretty neat. She's from this obscure little country south of America called Alabama. Have you heard of it? <laughs> Alabama? Yeah. So I mar- She's not here, so I can talk tough. If she was here, it'd be a different story. But she's, she's from the, yeah, the great country of Alabama. So a couple times a year, we get passports and we go see grandma and grandpa and we go down there. So that's my family. I just wanted you to get to know me a little more. Uh, we're going to we're gonna pray and we're gonna jump in. I love that the last song we sung before I, I, I got the privilege to come up here was called Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Because here, here's what I know. The Apostle Paul said something that is a really neat verse for you guys and it's a horrible one for preachers. He said this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. Now that's an awesome one for you. But when your job is to talk, you're like, Paul, come on, man, what are you doing? Like, help me out here. All right, but, but I understand what the Apostle Paul was saying. The Apostle Paul is simply saying this. We can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk till we're blue in the face. But if the power of God does not rest on what we do, our talking is not only ineffective, it's actually dangerous, right? Knowledge, Paul said, puffs up, love builds up. And if we just come and endlessly get another sermon and another sermon and another sermon and we don't metabolize it with service, it becomes dangerous. And I simply say that to say this, we don't need another good talk this week. I didn't come all this way to give you a good talk. I came believing that the power of the Holy Spirit is going to change some of our lives in this room this morning, mine included. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray right now together. I'm gonna say the words, but our hearts are gonna get together and we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. 
I am uh, as human as you. I bleed as red as you. I have as many sins and mistakes and shortcomings as you all do. I have as many fears and insecurities as any of you in this room. I have some successes and gifts and talents like the rest of you do in this room. We are all just human. You don't need Chad to come here and talk to you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. You guys believe that? So let's invite him in a beautiful way together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you as I have seen in the last few days. This isn't just a church that comes and and has a holy huddle together. This is a church that meets together so they can go out into their city and they can be a, a practical difference in this place. I thank you for what you're doing here. Now, Holy Spirit, would you please, please do what only you can do. Jesus, you taught us that it's the Holy Spirit that is our advocate. There are so many people in this room that need advocating for this morning. Jesus, you told us that your Holy Spirit is who guides us into all truth. So would you give us another nugget of your truth about the kingdom this morning? Jesus, your your word says that it's the Holy Spirit that is our comforter. Some people walk in here and the thing they need most is comfort. Would you be that for them, Holy Spirit? Your word says that you're our counselor, Lord. Some people come in and they need to be counseled through this moment. Would you do that, Holy Spirit? And then lastly, Jesus, you said that the Holy Spirit is also a convictor of sin. Would you also do that uh, incredibly difficult yet beautiful life-transforming work of convicting all of us of any sin that might be keeping us from freedom? Jesus, we pray this in your precious name. Holy Spirit, we love you, and God, we thank you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So about uh, five, five and a half years ago, I walked through an incredibly dark thing in life. And I didn't see it coming, and I didn't expect it, and it really rocked my world. Five and a half years ago, I turned 40. <laughs> yeah, and all my men with midlife crisis say amen, right? Like, uh, and, and I turned 40, and I didn't think it was a big deal, all right? I didn't think a midlife crisis would be part of my story, right? Because I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I know how to pray. I know how to renew my mind. I know the word of God, right? And so I'm not gonna have a midlife crisis when I get into my 40s. That's for pagan men, right? That, 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 that cheat on their wives and buy expensive cars. That's not me. That, that's for those guys. And boy, was I wrong. In fact, the day I turned, literally the day I turned 40, I was spiraling into a midlife crisis. And here's why. I had this very vivid memory the day I woke up on my 40th birthday of my parents when I was a kid, when they were in their 40s. And here's what I was thinking. When I was a little kid and my parents were in their 40s, I was thinking to myself, my word, my parents are basically dinosaurs. Like one foot in the grave, one foot out. Why do they even exist other than to help feed and clothe me? Like 40-year-olds are so lame. 40-year-olds are so boring. That's how I felt when my parents were in their 40s and I was a little kid and I woke up when I turned 40 and I went, oh no, I'm that guy now. And I have kids and the judgment's gonna come back on me now and I'm not gonna be lame. And so I did the dumbest, this is, this is, this is the danger of the midlife crisis. I did the dumbest thing in that moment. I went straight to the mall on my 40th birthday and I walked into this store in our mall and it's an amazing company, but it's a clothing store for teenagers. And it's called Pacific Sunwear. I don't know if they're on the East Coast, but they're really big out on the West Coast. It's called PacSun and I walk into this store and there's this uh, girl named Lizzie who greets me We'll call her Lizzie because that was her name. <laughs> and she greets me and she's a little looking at me kind of like, did you bring your son? Because my son now goes to this store, right? My oldest son and shops there. And she was kind of looking at me like, I don't know if this is the right store for you, but how are you doing? And I said, good, I'm here for some, some, some jeans, some 
some clothes. And she's like, all right, what kind do you want? And I go, I said this, I go, I want some of those uh, uh, skinny pants, skinny, skinny pants. And she kind of laughed like, what do you, what? I go, yeah, the skinny pants. She goes, do you mean skinny jeans? I go, yes, that's what I meant, skinny jeans. I want, I want some of those, right? And look at my legs. I have no business wearing skinny jeans. Like, that's not the body God gave. God, I'm, a, I'm a stocky kid. I've always been a stocky kid. I need to wear the, the, the loose jeans, the cargo jeans, right? Or, or maybe no jeans at all. Maybe some, some suit pants or something, right? Some, some of my um, elders in this church are going, maybe wear some jeans without holes in them, sir. But anyways, <laughs> I, I'm just being holy before the Lord. All right, sorry. Bad joke, sorry. And so I walk in there, and Lizzie's trying to be real nice, but I can tell it's awkward because she's like, you're like 40, and I'm insecure. And so I find a couple of the jeans, and I go back to the dressing room, and I try them on. And now, now the jeans, they've, now, they've since years later made them very stretchy, but this was five and a half years ago, and it was just straight denim. And if you're wearing old school denim jeans, you know that they just don't move much. And so I put on these skinny jeans, and I get to the calf. And I'm in the dressing room, and it doesn't go any further. Now, the rational thing you do when you're not in a midlife crisis is you put your foot down, you take the pants off, you hand them to Lizzie, you walk out of the store and say, I'm so sorry, I should have never been in here, I'm 40, right? That's the rational thing you do. But of course, I'm not a rational human being, I'm going through a midlife crisis, so I'm like, no, I'm going to get this thing on. And so I'm jumping like this, but I'm 40 now, so I don't have any core strength, right? And I promise you, this literally, I know pastors are notorious for exaggerating, this literally happened. As I'm putting on the jeans, I start bouncing to the right. I hit the wall and I fall down in a very exposed and vulnerable moment. And Lizzie's out there waiting to, to, to help me, right? And I just hear her go, oh my goodness, sir, are you all right? And I go, first of all, don't call me sir, I'm young. <laughs> and I go, and I'm fine. And she goes, are you sure? And I go, no, I fell. <laughs> and and I, I eventually got smart and I took off the jeans and I handed them to her and I, I walked out of the store again like we talked about last night, just, just full of shame. And then here's the funny thing. Uh, we were doing a sermon series uh, meeting with our creative team at our church because we always like to try and be uh, super creative with our sermon series, right? And so I'm meeting with them. And a lot of times we, we go back and forth and discuss what we're gonna talk about in a couple months. And I just walked in and said, I know the sermon series I wanna do. I wanna do a sermon series called Skinny Jeans. And I said, I wanna subtitle it this because this is even more important. Subtitle it this, Skinny Jeans, and then subtitle is this, Comfort is Overrated. And the team kind of looked at me and they're like, okay, where, where are you going with this? And I said, here's where I want to go with this. I want to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus for the next four weeks. And the reason we're going to call it skinny jeans, and I told them my silly story and they laughed. And I said, the reason we're going to say that comfort is overrated because this is exactly the message of the kingdom of God, Bethany Church. And it's this, the kingdom of God, like for the young people right now, skinny jeans are in style. The kingdom of God will forever be in style and in fashion. The kingdom of God is the true kingdom God originally intended, not the kingdom of the world we live in, right? And the kingdom of God will always be in fashion, but please listen to me, okay? The kingdom of God is never comfortable. We're, we're gonna have an eternity of comfort, right? The book of Revelation tells us that after we die, our first death, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more mourning, there'll be no more crying, there'll be no more pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. But right now, let's talk honest in church, we're in the old order of things, right? And so right now, we're still gonna have some really uncomfortable moments as disciples of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says uh, in, in, I think it's uh, Matthew 6, 30, 16, 33, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, Right? 
but, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. In other words, the kingdom of God is always in fashion. It's like high heels, ladies. It's always going to be in fashion, but it's rarely going to be comfortable, right? Can I get an amen if you wore those today, right? Always inside, and that's the kingdom of God. And so I said, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about discipleship for, for four straight weeks and remind everyone, like, like it's, 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 it's right, but it's not comfortable. Jesus even said sometime to a, a, all these people that were so romanticizing him because he was doing all these miracles and he was uh, opening blind eyes and he was raising people from the dead and they're like, we want to follow you. And I think Jesus knew what they were really saying was, we love watching you do all this crazy stuff. Can we follow you? And so Jesus said, you can, but, but, but just so you know, uh, uh, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Like Jesus is sobering up a little bit and go, hey, I know this is really fashionable and fun and neat, but, but can I remind you, if you really follow me in this lifetime, it is not going to be comfortable. It will be right and it will be full of joy and I will give you a peace that passes understanding, but it will not be comfortable. And so I said, we're gonna do that series. And, and I simply say that to say that this this morning, for, for, for the next few minutes, I just wanna talk to you about one concept of discipleship. I think that's all we can we handle in one sitting, right? I'm, I just wanna talk to you about one facet of what it means to be a disciple. And this facet is not comfortable, but when we get it, it is beautiful. And it's this, it's one word, one, one, two words, one concept, it's this. It, it's, it's the phrase peacemaker, one of the most significant yet underrated things we're called to be in the kingdom of God is peacemakers. In fact, let's go straight to the source, our, our rabbi himself, Jesus, right? Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, everyone say blessed. Yes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God, right? The real disciples will always be characterized as peacemakers. That word blessing in the Greek, it means this, it means happy, it means fortunate. It means to be envied. When Jesus said the word blessed in their ancient language, that's the definition. That's what they heard was you, you want to be happy? You want to be considered fortunate? You want to be, to be, be envied? Then listen to me. You will in the kingdom of God be a peacemaker. For those are my true sons and, and, and daughters. And in fact, Jesus' half-brother a couple decades later, he would write to the church in Jerusalem and he would write this in your Bible. It's in James chapter three, verse 18. Listen to this. He said, blessed, or excuse me, peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. Think about that. Peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. That is a beautiful thing because you all walked in here and whether you realize it today or not, you want a harvest of righteousness in your life. I don't even think you would have came to church today. I don't even think you would have taken the time to get to this church today if something in your heart and spirit didn't deeply crave to be used by God. Don't you want to be used by God? I sure do. I want to take some things to heaven. And you know what we get to take to heaven with us? We don't get to take stuff, but you know what we get to take? Stories. And you know what peacemakers create? in their lives, a whole bunch of stories of how God used them to be Jesus with skin on to hurting and broken people. And I wanna be one of those people. Jesus said, peacemakers who sow in peace will raise a harvest of righteousness. Now here's where in the message I'm gonna stop right now and I'm gonna clear something up because I know what a bunch of you are probably thinking if you're like me. You're thinking, oh yeah, I think I'm a peacemaker. I'd like to be, oh, who wouldn't wanna be a peacemaker, right? But I'm, here, here's where it gets uncomfortable. I'm gonna disrupt everything. There is a big difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. 
See, most of us hear peacemaker and we think, oh yeah, I, I'm all about keeping the peace. Kumbaya, man, right? Like, I, I'm all, I just watched the Lion King movie with my kids a few weeks ago. Kuna Matata, right? Like, who doesn't in their right mind want everything to just chill out? Who, who in their right mind wants to just cause a bunch of drama, right? But, but listen to me, Bethany Church. Please listen to me. Jesus was not a peacekeeper. Not even close. Jesus was a peacemaker. And there is a big difference. See, peacekeepers, and, and let me just say this. I am by nature a peacekeeper, not a peacemaker. Lest you think I'm preaching at you this morning. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. Because I think in this room there's a bunch of people probably more like me. I am by nature a peacekeeper. Here's the difference. Peacekeepers like to stay out of trouble. Peacekeepers don't like drama. Peacekeepers just want everybody to like them. I grew up my whole life wanting everybody to like me. I worked really hard trying to get everybody to like me. And so what I was always doing was walking around trying to keep the peace. I wanted to be popular. That was part of my thing. And so I was always walking around trying to make sure that everybody all the time was happy with me, even if I had to sell out on my internal values to make sure everybody stayed happy. And we live in such a chaotic culture right now, do we not? Our country is in such a vulnerable season, and I can't even fully put my finger on it, but there's such divisiveness, and there's such a degree of disunity, and there's such a split down the middle ideologically in our country right now, and I think for a lot of us, we assume that to get rest from that and reprieve from that, the thing we need to do is just keep the peace as good Christians. The problem with that is our leader, Jesus, was not a peacekeeper. He was a peacemaker. And Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. James didn't say, peacekeepers who sow in peacekeeping will raise a harvest of righteousness. You know what peacekeepers who sow peacekeeping raise? A harvest of comfort and safety. But in the kingdom of God on this side of eternity, we don't get promised comfort and safety. That's not what disciples get asked to do. So, so let me juxtapose being a peacekeeper, if you're like me, and some of you tend to be more like that, with what it looks like to be a peacemaker, because this is who Jesus was. Let me just give you a, a, a few examples, but, but let, me, let me say this, this first. My wife and I were on vacation a couple years ago, and she was uh, reading a book, and she's from Alabama, so I was already nervous about her reading, and um, I... <laughs> I just seen if you're awake. I just seen if you're awake. I love her. I love Alabama. All right, I'm done with those jokes. All right. She's reading this book by a researcher, a professor from the University of Houston, and also a psychologist, and she's become pretty famous. Her name's Brene Brown. She gave a, a TED Talk that went viral, and it made her famous. And she's reading this book by this lady named Brene Brown, and it's called Braving the Wilderness. And in this book, in chapter four, uh, I finally uh, got tired on vacation of hearing my wife talk about how amazing this book was. And so I finally just took the book when she was done with it and I started skimming through it. And I got to chapter four and you know how modern books, a lot of the authors, they will put a, a quote at the beginning of the chapter or a Bible verse or a pithy statement to kind of foreshadow what they're about to talk about in the book. I started to read that as I was, as I was skimming through the book because she did that. And in chapter four, the only quote that she put at the top was simply this. And I'm gonna build from this quote. She said this, people are really, really hard to hate up close. So move in. That's a peacekeeping quote right there. In fact, when I read that, I was mad that it wasn't in the Bible. I was like, Jesus, couldn't you have said that in the Sermon on the Mount? Because that's Jesus talk right there. I was like, Solomon, come on, you wrote the whole book of Proverbs with these pithy one-liners. Couldn't you say that? 
I was like, this is like Bible type stuff here. People are really hard to hate close up and so move in. And here's why I love that. Jesus was king of moving in where everybody else was moving away, right? In fact, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 14, what's it say? The word, the logos, Jesus, the word became flesh. And I love how the message paraphrase puts it and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus was, listen, if you're a peacekeeper as God, you don't get off that throne of perfection to come down here to this crazy world, right? There's no way if you're a peacekeeper, you're getting off that throne, getting into the womb of a teenage girl and subjecting yourself to this chaos known as, as planet Earth. Why would you do that? You stay up on your per throne in, perfect, in, in per perpetual perfection and you just intercede for us crazy humans and hope it works out, right? But Jesus isn't a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker and peacemakers move in where everybody else is moving away. And this is what Jesus does when he gets into the womb of that teenage girl. When everybody else would have said any God over this creation wouldn't get near this crazy creation, Jesus says, no, I'm moving in. And here's why. Humans are really, really hard to hate close up. Even the ones you think you hate. This is why our rabbi said this, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, right? Love your enemies, pray for, like I hear that and I go, what? That's not comfortable. That's not peacekeeping type mentalities. Peacekeepers go, stay away from your enemies. Get as far away from them so there's no conflict, right? In fact, let's go to the story. You guys remember the famous story in the gospels of Jesus and the woman at the well? The Samaritan woman who had been divorced five times and was working on number six. So she was the outcast of her, of her society in Samaria. But let's look at some quick history real quick, all right? If you're new to church, let me give you some backdrop because you deserve to know this. The Jews, who Jesus was at the time, because he was born into the Jewish culture, the Jews and the Samaritans were arch enemies on a multitude of levels. Politically, they were arch enemies. Spiritually, they were arch enemies. Ethnically, they were arch enemies. And here's the irony, they all lived right next to each other. Their towns were so close if you look at a map. And so they did the peacekeeping thing that was smart. If you ask me, I'm going, that's a smart move. There was so much racial and spiritual hostility between the two groups, and they lived so close that they decided to build roads around the city instead of having to walk through the city to avoid conflict. Doesn't that seem smart? I, if you just ask me, I'm not the smartest guy in the room here. But that just seems like a good thing to do, right? That's a peacekeeping thing to do. That's going to absolve them from potential conflict. We'll build roads to go around our cities so we don't have to see or look or touch each other, have any interaction with each other. But do you know what a, a verse in the Bible says uh, in that story, the, the, the Good Samaritan story, that we typically read and skip right over because we don't think it's important? And it's at the, it says this, Jesus walked straight through Samaria. And, and listen to me, church, this is precisely... This is precisely what a peacemaker does. When peacekeepers, like I'm prone to be, want to avoid conflict, want to avoid drama, want to avoid the elephant that's really in the room, whether it's politically, spiritually, racially, theologically, whatever it is, well, peacemakers walk around groups they're not comfortable with. Peacemakers walk right into the middle of it and say, let's have a talk. Let's sit down and get to know each other because as Brene Brown says, people are really, really hard to hate close up. So move in, right? 
And Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, God in the flesh, the one who spoke all of this into existence, is coming to this earth to show us what it looks like to bring redemption and reconciliation. He says we don't, as Christ followers, avoid people we're uncomfortable with. We rock right to them, and we sit with them, and we suspend judgment on them, and we start to get to know their story. Because behind every behavior you and I might call bad, there is a backstory. Nobody grew up hoping to be bad and immoral and unethical and sinful. It's a reality of the human condition. And behind every bad mistake and behind every person you don't like or disagree with or you would deem to be your enemy for whatever reason, there is a story that got them there just like there's a story that got you and I where we are. And Jesus is coming to show us we're not called to keep peace because peacekeepers keep away. Peacemakers walk right into the middle of it and this is what Jesus does with this woman in Samaria. And when he does that, do you understand what he's doing? When he walked in to that city as a rabbi, he made himself instantly ceremonially unclean. You want to talk about inconvenient, but listen to me. Peacekeepers are looking for convenience. Peacemakers will be wholly inconvenienced for the greater good of someone else. So Jesus goes, I don't care if I'm a rabbi. I know I, Jesus is kind of familiar with the Torah, right? <laughs> he knows what it would take to become ceremonially clean again as a rabbi. And he says, I don't care about the inconvenience. I didn't come here to be convenienced. If I did, I would have stayed on my throne up there where it's perfect. I came down here to get in the mess up close to people because people are really hard to hate close up and Jesus is teaching us so we move in as disciples. And he sits with her. And he doesn't only become ceremonially unclean by walking into Samaria, he gets the double whammy by sitting with a woman. Because ladies, and I'm not proud of this, but 2,000 years ago, women were barely above property in the mindset of men. Not, not of Jesus though, <laughs> He came to set that straight and go, no, 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 this is not a man's world. This is a human world. And so he comes and he sits with the person he should have never, it was scandalous for him to sit with a lady in Samaria. But he doesn't just go for the double whammy, he's teaching us something, church. He goes for the triple whammy. Not only is he sitting in Samaria, he's sitting with a woman in Samaria, now here's the triple whammy. She's been divorced five times. Her own people don't even want to be with her. That's why she's at the well at noon. All of the women in their life groups and their little church organizations all went in the morning because it's one of the hottest subterranean cultures in the world, Samaria. It's a desert land. You don't go at the hottest time of day to fetch water. That's physically dangerous, but she was so ostracized and outcast that not even her own people, you know what it took for someone to come and speak life and save her soul? and teach her how to really live and how to really change her life and to quit going to man after man after man. You know what it took? The savior of the world coming down and saying, I don't care that she's supposed to be my enemy. And I don't care that men think women aren't valuable 2,000 years ago. And I don't care if this inconveniences me and makes me ceremonially unclean. I love this woman. I knit this woman together in her mother's womb. I know the backstory behind her bad behavior. And I'm not coming to condemn her. I'm coming to give her water where she will never go thirsty again. I'm coming to bring the springs of living water to her soul. And how can I do that by osmosis? I can't. I'm going to do it by walking up, sitting with her, looking her in the face, acknowledging her story of hurt and brokenness, and then eventually offering her real life. This is what we're called to do, church. 
But the enemy of our souls would have us to believe the smart, nice, kind Christian thing to do is to simply keep peace. And Jesus comes and says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Right? When he inaugurated his ministry, it wasn't my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. That's what he left us with. When he started, though, he's like, no, 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 my message is going to divide households. And guess what? It wasn't households of Samaritans. It was dividing households of Jews because he was such an unconventional rabbi. He, he seemingly was breaking all their rules to go and save and help people. And he created so much divisiveness within his own culture because he was reestablishing not how they had made the kingdom of God, which religion does, but what the kingdom of God actually looked like. It wasn't just the woman at the well, though. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? One of the most vulnerable moments in human history, this lady made the biggest mistake of her life, and according to their Torah, she's about to get stoned to death. And I think it's real interesting, the guy who she committed adultery with wasn't there to get stoned to death, according to the Torah, because again, it was a man's world, and Jesus isn't going to have it. And, and if Jesus was a peacekeeping God, he would have looked at that mob of powerful men who were about to stone this vulnerable lady, and he would have stayed as far away from that mob as possible, because he knew if he went and defended her, it would get him in a bunch of political and spiritual trouble with the tribe. But he's not a peacekeeper. He's a peacemaker. So you know what he does? He gets right in the middle of the mob and he doesn't step by the lady. He steps in front of the lady. And he looks at all those power-broking religious gentlemen, the priests of the day, and he said, let any one of you without sin cast the first stone. And we know the story. Jesus was the only one in that group without sin. He was the only one who legally had the right to actually stone her to death and it be just. And what's he do? They all start to leave one at a time and he looks at her and he goes, ma'am, do... Do any, do any of them condemn you? And she looks around, they're all gone. She goes, no. And then he says some of those, he goes, neither do I. And let's not pass over that too fast. The creator of the universe just looked at a woman moments after her worst mistake she would ever make and says, there is no condemnation for you if you will just trust me. Paul would later write that in Romans 8, right? Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because those who are in Christ Jesus have been set free from the law of sin and of death, right? That's the beautiful message. And Jesus stands up and, and he does what peacemakers do. Now listen, because if you're like me and a peacekeeper, this is gonna challenge you. But remember, the kingdom of God's not comfortable. It's fashionable, it's right, but it's not comfortable. He does something, he does something in that whole story really uncomfortable. He defends her before he disciples her. And I think a lot of times, we wanna get right to, to the behavior change. We wanna get right to the, hey, clean up your ethics, clean up your morals, clean up your standards. Hey, behave better, so we all feel comfortable, so we honor God more, right? We, we, we tend as humans, with, not with us, it's mercy for us, judgment for them, right? That's the human fallen nature. It's, God, I need mercy, they need judgment though, because I don't like them. And Jesus comes, and if the, let, let, let's talk about this, church. If the creator of the universe, who reserves the right to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, if the creator of the universe sees fit to defend someone before he disciples them, and we get this pattern more than once, how much more do you think he's asking us as simply his students and disciples to follow that same pattern? We defend not because someone deserves it or because their actions merit it. We defend them because they're image bearers of God. And God wants to save them. 
and God wants to redeem them, and God wants them to trust Jesus for their salvation. But Jesus knows what humans, us untrusting humans need. He needs to defend us so he can disciple us. And 2,000 years later, we sit under the greatest defense. While he stood in front of her, do you know what he did for you and me? Got up on a cross and defended us with sinless, innocent, divine blood. He got choked out for you and me to breathe for an eternity. He got beat within an inch of his life so you and I wouldn't have to be. This This is what Jesus does. This is what peacemakers do. Jesus, multiple times in the Gospels, I'll, I'll give you one more because I don't want you to think this is my opinion. I want you to know this is that this is the template. This is the rhythm of God's grace. Jesus would, would, would walk around towns and, and, and we have multiple accounts where he heals lepers. You guys remember reading those stories in the Gospels? Well, here's what you historically got to remember before we just romanticize those stories and teach them in Sunday school. Lepers didn't get to come in the city. So anytime you're reading about Jesus healing a leper, you need to know this. Jesus was where a rabbi wasn't supposed to be. They had had worked out a nice peacekeeping treaty. Lepers, if we touch you, we'll get what you get. And now this was bad theology, but this is what they believed in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. They believed that if you had something like leprosy, clearly you were cursed by God. Clearly you had lived such a bad life or done something so wrong that you were cursed by this almighty, unseen, holy God. Bad theology, and Jesus comes as God in the flesh and walks right up to him to heal him to show, no, this isn't, this isn't a curse. I'm here to help you. That's a curse of sin, not a curse from God. Uh, the brokenness of our DNA and our genetics is, is a curse because of sin. This isn't on God, and so Jesus comes to defend God by, by saying, no, I'm going to heal you to show you I didn't come to curse you in your leprosy. I came to heal you from your leprosy. That's the devil, not, not, not God. That's him trying to attack you, right? And so Jesus, see, if he's a peacekeeper, he goes, I'm not touching them. I could catch leprosy. But you know what peacemakers think? They think what Jesus thinks. Jesus never thought, oh man, I better be careful, I might catch leprosy. Jesus goes, they better watch out, they're about to catch Jesus. Right? Like that's, that's the confidence and courage peacemakers have. Peacekeepers, peacekeepers, like I'm naturally bent towards play it safe. We don't want to get ourselves in any precarious situations, and so we think for the glory of God, do the safe, smart thing. And sometimes, listen, we're not called to do the safe, smart thing. We're called to do the God thing. And trust God to protect you and trust God to go with you and trust God to give you the grace and the power and the strength and the anointing you need to walk into precarious situations and love people that you're told you're supposed to hate because people are really, really, really hard to hate close up. Move in. I learned this lesson and I'll end with this. You guys have been so attentive. I appreciate it. You've been really nice again to the new guy. I'm gonna brag, I'm gonna brag on the Boston metro area everywhere I go. This has been a treat. Let me end with this. I got got taught what I'm teaching you right now or reminding a bunch of you of right now is is something I got taught in the most unexpected, beautiful, yet uncomfortable way. 12 years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of buying our first home. And your first time you ever get to buy a home, it's a pretty big deal anywhere. But in the Denver metro area, it is incredibly expensive, just like it is out here. 
and the houses, the market's going up because everyone wants to move to Colorado. It's, it's a beautiful, God was in a good mood when he spoke Colorado into existence. I promise you that. It's a beautiful place to live. So the housing market's through the roof. And we're young church planners 12 years ago who are poor and broke. I don't know how we got a loan, but we got a loan for this house. And we got our first house and, and we almost didn't buy our first house because the house next to us, our neighbor's. The house was so run down and the house was so beat up and it was probably a 60-year-old neighborhood and you could tell that this house hadn't had any work done on it in the last 60 years. No, no fresh paint. They didn't mow. They didn't, uh, they didn't trim their shrubs. They're the house. Y'all know this neighbor? They're the house with five cars in the parking lot and none of them work, right? Y'all know that neighbor? And if you don't, you're that neighbor. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That, that, that was their yard. And, and, and everything in my gut was going, oh, I have two, two new kids at the time, and I'm a new father, and I'm a church plan. I'm going, do we, we almost didn't move in because of the neighbor. And then for some reason, by God's grace, we just said, nope, we love the house. Beggars can't be choosers. We're, we're moving into that house. And so we move in. And I eventually, on the day we moved in, I never saw who lived there, but I already kind of had an idea in, in, in kind of my judgmental mind of, of what type of person lived there. And we're, 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 the day we move in, we're in the moving trucks, and I'm with my family and friends, and we're out there, and we're moving, and finally, the owner of the house named Cliff walks out. Obviously didn't know his name at the time. He walks out. He has no shirt on. He's got old, gross jeans with holes in them, but not the kind you buy for style, right? They're old, old from not having any other jeans. He's got a big old beer belly. He's got an unkept beard. He's got hair everywhere, and you can tell he's inebriated. And he's got this deep, commanding, powerful voice. And I look, I'm pretty busy, and I look up when I see him, and he looks at me and goes, this is our first words together ever. He goes, hey, you're, you're not going to call the cops on me, are you? And I'm holding something, and I literally go, uh, I'd like not to. Um... <laughs> I have a hunch that might be a pattern, being that that's the first thing out of your mouth you've ever said to me is I'm meeting you and you meeting me. So uh, I hope not to call him on you, but uh, who knows? <laughs> and he just turns around and goes, great. And he stumbles back in his house. And my heart sunk, and I'm like, went in, and I told my wife, I go, Rachel, what have we done? I just met the neighbor, and he's even a little more crazy than we planned on. <laughs> I go, he was drunk, and he yelled, and he asked me not to call the cops, which means that happens all the time. And his name was Cliff, and I did this for the first year of Cliff and I's friendship, or lack of friendship. The first year, and, and, and don't, don't, don't get self-righteous on me, church, and act like you've never had this neighbor. The, uh, Cliff was the neighbor where before you go to work in the morning, you look outside the blinds to see if he's out there, because if he is, you'd rather be in trouble and get late to work than have to talk or look Cliff in the eyes, right? Y'all had that? Again, if, if you haven't, it, you're the neighbor, right? Okay, so <laughs> I'm just kidding, kind of, but... <laughs> But, but for a full year, I wouldn't look at Cliff. I, I would literally stay in my house if I had to go somewhere, if he was out there to avoid a conversation. I would wait till he went back in the house. Do you remember what Jesus told us? Love your neighbor with the same passion and intensity and graciousness and kindness that you love yourself. I must not have 12 years ago loved myself too much by the way I was refusing to make peace with Cliff. Because see, my common sense and life experience told me that you stay away from guys like that because they're dysfunctional and because there's trouble. But then I read books from like Brene Brown and, and, and I realize people are really, really, really hard to hate close up. So, so what's Jesus 
model for us. You move in. You go where other people won't go for the sake of those people because heaven and hell is real and eternity is at stake. And my comfort isn't the point on this side of eternity. It's people's eternity. It's people getting to know Jesus, right? And so finally one day, by God's grace, um, and it started bad, I, I get a call from my wife. I'm at work. I get a call from my wife at work, and she's like, uh, our kids have been playing out front today, and Cliff has left driving drunk three times and came back. And she's like, I'm just really frustrated because, you know, it's dangerous, and he shouldn't be driving, you know, and our kids are out there, and, and they didn't want to play in the backyard anymore, and I want our kids to be able to go out in the front yard. So I come home from work early, and I'm heated. I'm like, I'm done letting Cliff control the joy of me living in this house. And so I go over to Cliff, and I say, Cliff, listen to me. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I have a value that says I'm to love you the way I love myself. I said, but Cliff, you're making it really, really hard on me. Because I have little children and my chief job is to be their father and to protect them. And you've, my wife told me three different times, gotten in your truck and driven drunk today while my kids are playing out front. And, and, and I know that doesn't bother you, but I'm their dad and you could accidentally, driving drunk, run over them or kill them or hurt them. And I can't let that happen. And so I said something to Cliff that to this day I still regret, incredibly ungodly. I looked at him and said, Cliff, if you hurt my kids driving drunk, I'm not going to call the cops. I'm not going to get you in trouble. I said, I'm going to kill you. Obviously, wrong thing to say, but I was in father mode. New dad, right? Papa bear, protective mode. And I went into the house and I slammed the door and I started pacing. You ever have, you know when you're mad, you have a conversation with them? You have a way better conversation when they're not there than when they're there. You, you talk awesome when they're not around, right? And I'm doing that. And the Holy Spirit, the one that we invited earlier, here's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knew everything about mine and Cliff's situation that I didn't know. And so the Holy, Holy Spirit starts working on me within minutes. Usually the Holy Spirit, when I'm mad, gives me some buffer. He's a gentleman. The Bible says he's gentle, right? The Holy Spirit usually gives me a buffer to cool down. Before he starts, before I can even hear him, but the Holy Spirit was quick on the scene with this one, and the Holy Spirit was like, Go ask for forgiveness from Cliff. And I'm having this prayer time going, I will not, Holy Spirit, ask for forgiveness from Cliff. Cliff needs to come over here and ask me for forgiveness for like a thousand different things he's done, Holy Spirit. So while I honor you and respect you, this one I can't obey. But we all know how it works. Just obey the Holy Spirit. He always has your best interest in mind, right? Even when you think he doesn't. And the Holy Spirit, and so I, I humbled myself and I went over there and I said, Cliff, man, listen, I, 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 don't, I don't condone this behavior because it's dangerous to my kids and I hope you understand that. But listen to me, I am so sorry for what I said to you. You don't deserve that. That was not appropriate of me. Could you forgive me? And he had the most bewildered look on his face I have, he is like, he stopped. He didn't know. And, and I started to, to see in this moment, oh my word, I don't think anyone's ever said sorry to him for anything. Can you imagine going through your whole life as, as difficult and painful as life is and no one's ever looked you in the eyes and said, I'm sorry? And, and I already know Cliff's had to spend his whole life saying sorry to people because he's been a dysfunctional person. I would go on later to learn since he was a little kid. An, an addict, a heroin addict and a drunkard. He was a heroin addict and a drunkard almost the whole time I knew him when we lived there. And when I said sorry, something broke between Cliff and I. The power of forgiveness, the power of saying I'm sorry. Something broke in our relationship. A friendship bonded that day. There was instant trust because I did 
the peacemaking thing instead of the peacekeeping thing. I walked right up to him, and I owned something. And so he started coming around more often when I was out in the summers mowing my lawn. And one day I'm out mowing my lawn, and I'm going this way, and my car's parked over here, and Cliff's house is over here. And my son, my, my, my oldest at the time, he had this tradition where when I would mow the lawn, he would go out into my old suburban, and he would sit and pretend like he's driving. So I'm mowing, and I, and I turn around, and I'm mowing the strip this way, and I look up, and, and to my wondering eyes, here's what I see. Cliff is leaning over the window where my son's play driving, and they're having a full-on conversation. Cliff and a five-year-old. And I sat there, and I got ready to turn off the, and I turn off the mower, and I'm going, just go get Cliff away. I was getting just ready to walk over there and go, Cliff, get away from the boy. Your breath alone could make him a future alcoholic. Cliff, get away from the boy, right? Like, and, and, you know, Cliff will be friends, but stay away from my son. And, and I had this God moment, and I know it was God speaking to me because I had a train of thought that was more mature and smarter than I am. I had this thought. I go, why is it that Cliff can talk so effortlessly to my five-year-old son, and he can hardly look me in the eye when we talk? And you know what God said to me? And again, I wasn't mature enough to have this response. So I knew, I, I just know this was God. And the Holy, God's like, what if Cliff can talk so effortlessly to a five-year-old? Because that's about the emotional maturity he has because of something that happened to him around that age. Some abuse, some trauma, some pain. And it was just the Holy Spirit because I, I just had that thought. I go, I think Cliff's emotionally a five-year-old. And I don't think... It's his fault. <laughs> it's annoying now that he's an old, older guy, but I don't think it's his fault. And I started to get some, some compassion for him. And so, so we started a new tradition where when I'm done mowing the lawn, if, he, if he's at home, he comes when I'm done mowing the lawn, we, we, we have some lemonade together and we talk in my garage. We did this for a couple years. And I started to find out Cliff's story and I found out 15 feet away in his house from my garage, he watched his mom die of a heroin overdose as a child. People are really hard to hate close up. Move in. I would find out in another conversation later that the only woman he ever had the privilege of marrying died of a heroin overdose in that house 15 feet away from my garage. And I found out a whole bunch of other traumatic, abusive, and heartbreaking things about Cliff's story in that garage. And a couple years later, I had the high privilege that a peacemaking disciple on this side of eternity every now and then gets where I got to sit in my garage and I got to speak the gospel to Cliff and I got to pray the prayer of salvation with Cliff. And it was a beautiful thing. About a year after that prayer, I woke up one Saturday morning and there was two cop cars outside of Cliff's house, which wasn't uncommon. He was still fighting addiction, still fighting and wrestling with some of the demons of his past. The gates of hell were coming strong at Cliff his whole life, taking advantage of some of the things that had happened to him as a kid, trying to keep him in that dysfunction. We know what that's like, those powerful forces. We know what that's like. And two cop cars didn't phase me because that was protocol for Cliff. Then all of a sudden, three showed up, and then four, and then it ended up being about eight cop cars. And by the eighth one, I'm going, something's wrong. And then about 30, 40 minutes later, I opened up the blinds again to, to check on the situation, and an EMT truck had pulled up. And that's, I knew, I knew it was bad. 
And I told my wife when we were talking, and as we were talking, I saw Cliff come out of the house in a body bag. And I knew instantly what had happened to Cliff because of all of our conversations and our prayers and our time together. I knew Cliff had taken his life. And Bethany Church, please listen to me. This is what I came to just talk to you about and plead with you and plead with myself that, that we would be these people. I, I ended up being Cliff's friend. Like, I love Cliff. I couldn't stand the dude. I almost, didn't get, I almost didn't move into the house because of the neighbor. But people are hard, hard, hard to hate close up. Move in, get to know people's stories. Get in the muck and the mire and the mess of people that the world will tell you you're not supposed to get anywhere near because behind whatever dissension and divisiveness we all create with each other, people have backstories. We gotta get past their behavior and be willing to be courageous enough to get to their backstory. Because that's the entry point to people finally getting discipled as if they first get defended. And it was when I started defending the, the humanity of Cliff and the dignity of Cliff is when God started to pour out his spirit on our relationship. And I don't know theologically how all this works. I'm not a theologian and I don't pretend to be one. All I know is that day I was like, God, I've heard so many different theological takes about suicide. God, all I know is what Cliff and I prayed in that garage was real. That Cliff genuinely believes in the saving work of Jesus. And the verse I told Cliff that day was, you are justified, Cliff, by grace through faith. It is not by works, lest any man should boast. There's nothing you can or cannot do that disqualifies you from the kingdom. It's simply the finished, perfected work of Jesus on the cross. And he knew it and he accepted it. And we talked about it more than one time. And I'm going, Jesus, Cliff has lived a lifetime of hell. 50 years of hell. I don't want him to spend an eternity in hell. I just felt the presence of God going, you think I want that for him? He's not in hell. It's not by works, lest any man should be by. Cliff is doing better than you right now, brother. I believe that with all my heart. And listen to me. If we really believe heaven and hell are real, church, like really believe it. I'm not talking about we give some nice statements at church. If we really believe it, then we have to be front lines people that are unafraid to get in the muck and the mire of people's messes. We have to be more mature and courageous than simply defining people by their, their, their behavior and looking at their backstory, knowing that behind everybody's behavior, including yours and mine, there's a reason we got there. Of course, it doesn't excuse or condone the behavior, but that's not the point. The point is we have someone that came to save us from that and actually give us the Holy Spirit to start changing that. And if not us, who? If we're not those people, who? And so I just came to plead with you. So if everyone would stand, I've talked longer than I'm supposed to. I'm gonna be in trouble. I'm sorry, Pastor Phil. I, I was taught by Jeannie that the, the, the brain can only endure what the bottom can. And so I, I kept you sitting too long, but we're up now, okay? I, I just, I wanna end this way. I wanna end pleading with you to, to not be what I was for, for most of my life, which was a peacekeeper. Because some of you I know, I know you, you're human like me. You come in here and you're like, Chad, I'm way more prone to just keep peace, to do my own thing, to not be seen, to stay out of trouble, stick with my tribe. I, I like to hang with people that look like me, people that uh, think like me, people that uh, vote like me. I like to be uh, in churches where everybody just is like me because it's comfortable and it's safe. And, and, and I just came to t tell you, church, if you're gonna be a church that God uses to change 
this county and the surrounding areas. Safety is not the main thing here. Comfort is not the main thing here. It's every single person in the Boston metro area is hard to hate close up. So would Bethany Church please be a church that continues to move in? And all I'm gonna ask is if every one of us in this room, if you so choose, would say, God, in the next 365 days, would you send me my cliff? And if you have one, God, would you send me one more? You've already had practice, you're ready to go. If we, if we just did that, this city alone would just be different by the end of next year. So if you're in here and you say, Chad, I wanna be that peacemaker, but like you, it's scary because I'm more like a peacekeeper, but I wanna be that peacemaking person and I want my cliff and I want Jesus to give me the grace, the power and the, the, the God goggles to notice them when they come my way, whoever she, he or she might be. If that's you and you say, Chad, I want to pray right now with you for that kind of grace to not only recognize that person when they come my way, but have the grace to be Jesus with skin on to them. If that's you, would you raise your hand? We're gonna pray together. We're gonna pray. Thank you. Keep them up. Keep them up because I want everybody to, to see, church, you're not alone. This is all of us, right? Keep them up. Keep them up. You're not alone because you're doing something courageous right now. You're at, this is a dangerous prayer we're about to pray right now, but it's the right prayer and it's a game-changing prayer. Jesus, would you make us peacemakers? Jesus, would you use this church and these amazing people to affect love and change for your glory? Would people see the, the beauty in Jesus, not, not, not just uh, the, the way we berate people, but would people see the beauty in who Jesus is by the way we, your believers, treat them? Jesus, this is a scary thing uh, in, until you get the taste of it. And so I pray that you give every single person here the grace and the desire and the passion and the resource and the words and the ears to be you with skin on. We pray this in the name of Jesus and everyone in the church said together. You guys have been amazing. I love you guys. Thanks for letting me be here. Thank you.